Amen. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. It's, uh, it's never fun being sick. Uh, last week, as the Lord would will it for me, I was uh, sick. And it's never fun, obviously, just life being put on hold and uh, painful sore throat and all those different things. You all were so kind, encouraging, praying for me. You sent me so many different remedies. I, I tried everything. I'm probably the healthiest I've ever been in my life right now. Garlic and turmeric and ginger and all these fun things. But the worst part about being sick is not being here. I was so frustrated. I was so sad on Saturday. I had been trying all week to get better and Saturday morning literally just had no voice. And so I texted Marty. I was going to call him and I think I even said in the text, like, I would call you with this request, but I can't even talk to you right now. Can you preach? I was so sad not to be here because I love preaching Christ. I love showing forth Christ from the scriptures. But I knew that Marty would do that, and he did an excellent job doing that. What I was even more sad about was not having you all be able to show forth Christ to me, being here with you. That's why the scriptures are so clear. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We gather together as a local church to remind each other that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And yes, you get an aspect of that in the live stream, but you don't hear everybody singing in the live stream. You don't enjoy that fellowship with one another where you realize Jesus is real to the person standing next to you and he has changed their life this last week. And you just want to say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. I was really sad not to be here to preach. But I was more sad last week not to be here to be preached to by you all through song, through fellowship, through prayer. The devil would want nothing more than for all of us to walk away from Jesus. To just say, I've had enough. The hardness, the deceitfulness of sin... Our souls grow callous and we just say, I've had enough. And he does that through bringing people to a place where they renounce Christ altogether. Whether it's deconstruction, whether it's progressive Christianity. He does that in various forms where people just leave the faith entirely. But another tactic of the devil, another scheme of the devil, and I believe a greater threat to our church than even deconstruction or progressive Christianity, another threat of the devil and scheme of the devil. If he can't get you to renounce Jesus, that's okay, as long as he can get you to be bored by Jesus. Just be bored of him. He knows, the devil knows that 
Our church does not have to renounce Jesus to stop being useful and effective in God's kingdom. You just have to become bored with Jesus, grow tired of him, complacent with him, and bored of him. And that's why we gather together. That's why we sing. That's why we exalt Christ together. That's why we gather. And that's what I missed so much last Lord's Day. And that's why I'm so glad to be able to be back with you all this morning to just stare at Christ. So let's do that together. Let's stare at Jesus together with the understanding in our minds and our hearts, with our affections directed to him to say, Jesus, I want to love you more because of being here together. I want to know you more, yes, but even as we studied this morning in in Sunday school, I don't want to just know you more. I want to love you. I want to be transformed by you. So Jesus, show me yourself so that I would be able to live out what we sang. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. To that end, we are studying the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two is where we are. We are in verses 18 through 22 this morning. And as we read, we are going to see two main realities that we must live out in order to not get bored with Jesus, in order to follow him in the way that he deserves and in the way that he demands. We will see two realities that we must live out from this text this morning. Mark chapter two, verse 18, Mark writes, John's disciples And the Pharisees were fasting and they came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But you put new wine into fresh wineskins. These are the very words of the God of the universe. Let's pray and ask that he would be kind and gracious to write their eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Father, we come before you as beggars. We come before you destitute, needy, impoverished, and pleading with you that you would give grace. That is what you love to do. That's what you've promised to do. So we beg of you, give us grace this morning through Christ, through his finished work on the cross, through the Holy Spirit, and through his illuminating work as the scriptures are read. We need to see Jesus so that we would be able to say, all I have is Christ. And that is a hallelujah statement. Praise the Lord. I have him. He's all I have. He's all I need. And he's all that I want. So Father, make that so. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now that we could behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
In the Gospel of Mark, specifically chapter 2, we have already seen two conflicts with Jesus and the religious leaders. First, at the beginning of the chapter, the paralytic, Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees didn't like that. Jesus was making himself out to be God, and he proved that he was by um, healing the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him. The second conflict is that Jesus was a friend to tax collectors and sinners. He was feasting with Levi and his friends. He called Levi a tax collector to be a follower. The religious leaders do not like Jesus. And there are three more conflicts that we will see. There are two more in chapter 2. There's one in chapter 3. So a total of five conflicts that we will see with the religious leaders and Jesus. The next one we're going to see this morning is the disciples not doing what the religious leaders think that they should be doing. The next one we'll see in a few weeks is the disciples doing what the religious leaders think that they shouldn't be doing. And then the last one is Jesus actually taking the conflict directly to the religious leaders at the beginning of chapter 3 and pressing the issue with them by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Five total episodes of conflict with the religious leaders, which is just another reminder to us that there are few things that are more dangerous than religious people. And Jesus is going to encounter them. He's going to be killed by them. And so here we have an encounter where Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting and Jesus' disciples are not. And so they come to him and they ask him a question. Whereas in the last section, they didn't have the guts to speak to Jesus directly. They went to Jesus' disciples. Here, at least, they have the guts to speak to Jesus directly. And Matthew chapter 9 tells us that there are some disciples of John the Baptist that also go in this crowd to ask Jesus. So maybe there's a, an aspect of genuineness on their part going to ask Jesus. John the Baptist is still alive at this point. He's probably in prison right now. And the Pharisees are trying to align John the Baptist and his followers with themselves and the crowd of religious leaders against Jesus. And their question in verse 18 is, why do John's disciples and our disciples fast, but yours don't? Jesus, you claim to be a spiritual guru here. We we see you as a uh, spiritual rabbi. Why don't your devoted followers fast? You claim to be a devoted follower of Yahweh. Why don't your followers fast? Now, fasting, the, the day of atonement back in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, was originally the only fast that re- was required of Israel on a national scale. After the exile, four other fasts were observed, as Zechariah 8 tells us. But the Day of Atonement was the only fast that was a a nationally observed fast. It was the only fast that's mentioned in the New Testament as well in Acts chapter 27. But other fasts popped up. Fasting is saying no to a good thing, to say yes to a better thing, namely food. You're saying no to food to say yes to pursuing the Lord, to following him. Fasting can be done for the purpose of mourning, mourning over sin, mourning over something that's happened in your life. Fasting can be, doing, uh, can be done for seeking God's blessing, for expressing your contrition over sin. There are a number of reasons why you can fast. And fasting was given by God to his people to be a blessing as we seek him. But the Pharisees had a terrible ability to turn blessings into burdens, and that's what they're doing here. 
they took one national fast and a few other fasts, and they said, you know what, let's prioritize these as a symbol externally of our righteousness. And so we're going to fast two times a week, Mondays and Thursdays, the Pharisees would fast. You remember Luke chapter 18, verse 12, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee says, I praise you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. And he says, I fast twice a week. That's Monday and Thursday. Why they picked those days, I don't know, but those were the days that the Pharisees would fast. Now, even though the population of Israel, less than 1% of the population were Pharisees, even though it was a tiny portion of the population, the Pharisees had a huge sway in Israel. And as such, they were bringing in followers that would do exactly what they were saying. Fast the way that we're fasting and show your spirituality and your righteousness. The Pharisees overvalued the oral traditions and undervalued the scriptures themselves. But their question basically is, if you, Jesus, are so spiritual as you claim to be, then why don't you make your disciples live up to our religious standards? We look more religious and spiritual than your followers, and you claim to be God come in the flesh. We pray, we give alms to the poor, we fast, we show you our righteousness, and you are not. Why? And Jesus is going to answer. He's going to answer in verse 19 and 20. He's going to answer by asking a question. He loves to do this. He answers a question with a question. And he's going to give three different examples with really a categorization into two main points that will become, uh, I trust what you can see from the text, two main points for our lives today. But Jesus answers a question by asking a question. When they say, why are you guys not fasting? Jesus answers the question by asking a question, do you mourn at weddings? Do you fast at weddings? He says in verse 19, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? If you're throwing a wedding and you have the bride and the groom and you're there celebrating their marriage, you don't fast, you don't mourn. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Just imagine, imagine we go to a wedding. We've been to weddings together before. Imagine you're at a wedding. Imagine uh, Donovan and Sarah's wedding is coming up. So we go to the wedding. I officiate the wedding. I pronounce them husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. They walk out. We go to the reception. We're having fun. We're dancing. We're feasting. We're enjoying, celebrating their union. And I get up in the midst of that and I yell, everyone stop. And you all look at me and I say, how dare you be happy? What do you guys think you're doing? Who do you think you are? And I rip my shirt and I start crying and I take a bunch of ashes, put them on my head and I say, I'm ashamed of you. And I walk out. You guys would think, I I know Patrick's crazy, but he's lost his marbles, right? This makes no sense to do that here. Doesn't work. Just think about the invitations. If you are married, you send out invitations. You remember the invitations would read something to the effect of, we invite you to celebrate the union of these two people. No wedding invitation says, please join us as we mourn the union. Nobody, nobody writes that. You don't fast at a wedding, you feast at a wedding. And our weddings only last a day, typically. Their weddings back in ancient Israel, they would last a whole week. It was a party. It was a feast. 
You don't fast during that feasting. We even experience this now. When you're thinking about going on a diet, you look at the calendar, right? You look and you go, okay, Thanksgiving, I want to make sure I'm not going on a diet when it's Thanksgiving or when it's Christmas. I'm no diets during those holidays. The same thing here. You're not going to be on a diet when you're enjoying the feast and the celebration of these two people being married. Jesus is not opposed to fasting. That's not the issue here. In fact, verse 20 tells us that he assumes that his followers will fast. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away, and then they will fast. I believe that that's a reference, yes, to the cross when Jesus will be killed. But I think more so than that, it's the ascension when he's going to be taken away from this earth. Then we will fast. But we will fast only when he is taken away. He is the bridegroom here. He is the groom. And he says, while I'm here, the people that are around, the friends of the bridegroom are not going to fast. They're going to celebrate that I'm here and that there's a wedding. And then when I leave, they can fast. This tells us the point of fasting. Fasting is not done to be seen by others. It's not done for pure asceticism. It's not done for pure self-denial or self-control. Fasting is not a twisting of God's arm. Fasting is a longing for God's glory to be seen and savored in your life. When you fast, you are pleading with God, bring the wedding. I want to see your power and your glory demonstrated in my life. And I want to see you present here on earth. Remember Luke chapter 2. Anna is fasting in the temple Jesus is born, Anna's fasting, and it says she's fasting because she's waiting for the redemption of Israel. I'm waiting for our Redeemer to come. Well, guess what? When the Redeemer comes, you don't need to fast because he's here, and the answer to your prayer is a yes and amen. So Jesus is not opposed to fasting. He's opposed to inappropriate fasting. He's opposed to fasting that's done at the wrong time. If he's there in their midst... They don't need to be fasting at all. And if the Pharisees knew who Jesus was and understood that reality, they would have celebrated that he was there. They wouldn't have remained fasting themselves. This leads us to the first reality that we need to live out. If we're going to follow Jesus the way that he demands and the way that he deserves, these two verses tell us, verse 19 and 20 tell us that we must, number one, rejoice in Jesus as our supreme delight. If we are going to follow Jesus the way that he demands and the way that he deserves, we must follow him by rejoicing in him as our supreme delight. Rejoice in Jesus as your supreme delight. The object of the joy of the disciples is Jesus. They follow him because they love him. They've left everything because Jesus is their everything. How could they be sorrowful and mourn as they watch their king come into their lives to usher in the kingdom? For those who had been fasting because of their sin, this is a time of intense joy because Levi, who was broken over his sin, has now been shown there as a savior who will give you grace and pardon all of your iniquities. Can I just ask, is Jesus the supreme joy in your life? Is Jesus the object of your greatest satisfaction? By the way, if he is, you will fast. We will fast now because he's not here. 
physically, bodily, we're waiting for him. Matthew 25, we're waiting for the bridegroom to come again. And so we fast now because we're waiting and we're longing for that day. If we never fast as Christians, we are the exception, not the rule, because the church through the millennia has been fasting. It's been a fasting church. You can fast for mourning, for repentance, for asking God's help. All those things are good. But at its root, fasting is a physical expression of your soul longing for things to be made right again, to, to be made whole, the redemption of all creation. And that will only happen when Jesus comes again. So since he's not here, we remind ourselves through fasting that we're longing for him. Fasting is saying, I hunger for God more than I hunger for food. It's Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Like a, a person in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I want you, Jesus. And if you're looking for that redemption, that final redemption, then you will fast. You should fast. God is in the business of filling empty stomachs for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. And one day when Jesus returns, we will be with him forever in heaven and there will be no more mourning and it will be as inappropriate on that day to say, no thank you, I don't want to celebrate. As it would have been for the disciples in this day to fast and to say, no thank you, I don't want to celebrate that Jesus is here. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, the reason why my disciples are not fasting is because their greatest desire is standing right in front of them. And because of that, that leads to the second reality that we must live out. Because of that, number two, we must resolve to make all of life all about him. If we delight in Jesus more than anything in the world, then of course the natural consequence is going to be point number two. We must resolve to make all of life all about him. Everything that we do will be done in relation to him. If we rejoice in Jesus as our supreme delight, then we will resolve to live every day to make every aspect of our lives all about him. And this is verses 21 and 22. Jesus gives two examples of this reality and he talks about a, a patch and wineskin. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it and the new one from the old and the worst tear will result. The patch hasn't shrunk yet. It's a new piece of clothing. So if you sew that new piece onto an old garment that has shrunk, that patch will shrink when you wash that old garment and the old garment won't shrink and so the patch will rip away and create a bigger tear. What is Jesus saying in this? What's the point of this analogy? What's the point of this example, this illustration? What he's saying is, Pharisees, you cannot add me to your life. You can't just put a little piece of me into your already existing world. You can't be added to any form of religion. You can't add Jesus to any form of spirituality. You can't just put a little patch of the gospel onto your life. No, the gospel is an entirely new garment altogether. Jesus isn't a patch for your life. If you come to Jesus, you must come desperate saying, I have nothing and I need all of you. And if Jesus is not your everything, then he is absolutely nothing for you. 
the old system of religion, the old pharisaical system of me being good enough to earn God's favor cannot be patched up. It needs a revolutionary change. The old system that contains this form of self-righteousness has to be obliterated. It cannot contain the truths of Jesus. The Pharisees' tradition, their religious forms didn't work. They were not sufficient. Just think about in this analogy that the Pharisees are saying our garment of our religious efforts and our good works, we're good. We just need a little patch to be put on. So they're saying, Jesus, we need a tiny little bit of you because the rest of us is just totally fine. We're awesome. We have a tiny little deficiency. So give us a little bit of Jesus, but the rest of us is fine. How prideful, how arrogant. That's why Jesus says, you don't get it. Of course you don't understand why the disciples aren't fasting. They're not fasting because they're feasting, rejoicing in the fact that I'm here because I'm their everything. And I am to you, Pharisees, just a tiny little patch. You're just saying, I just need a little bit of you, Jesus. Any attempt to combine those two pieces of clothing will fail. A new, a worse tear will result. You cannot integrate Jesus into a faulty system. The second example he gives is in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. You put new wine into fresh wineskins. This is the process of fermentation. You think of uh, yeast in bread makes the bread rise. My daughter and I made pizza last night. You start with a little piece of dough and, and then you leave it for a little while and the yeast makes it rise. Same thing happens during the process of fermentation for the wine. You put it into a wineskin that's new It has elasticity to it, and so the gases that develop can um, exist inside of that kind of balloon-shaped wineskin, and it grows, and it it has that rubber band effect that still has elasticity to it. But if it's an old wineskin, and it's done that a number of times, it has no more elasticity. And you put new wine into it, and the fermentation process happens, and the gases will explode that wineskin. That's what Jesus is saying. Pharisees, you're trying to put a little bit of me into your entirely old system of religious man-made works. And it's not going to work. I'm here to abolish human religion. What Jesus is doing will not fit into the Pharisees' convention of human religion. Jesus is giving and offering deliverance on an entirely new level. So much so that Jeremiah 16 says that this deliverance will overshadow the exodus, the greatest deliverance that Israel had ever known. This deliverance will be what's talked about so much so that it pales in comparison. This isn't an upgrade. Jesus isn't an upgrade. He's entirely new. He cannot be an add-on to the religion of the day. He is not an attachment, an addition, an appendage, an addendum. You don't integrate him into your life. What Jesus is saying is you cannot fit him into any existing category. And if you try to do that, again, with not only the garment analogy, but the new wineskin analogy, if you try to do that, if you try to put Jesus into your life and say, I just need a little bit of you, It will destroy your life. It will obliterate everything. This is a shatteringly new thing. Jesus is a shatteringly new thing. So the question is not, will the Pharisees add Jesus' teaching to theirs? The question should be, will the Pharisees abandon their teaching altogether and embrace Jesus alone? 
He's asking them that through these statements. You can't take the new and force it into the old structures because the old structures can't bear what the new is offering. By the way, this isn't a condemnation of the Old Testament. It's a condemnation of the Pharisees, their use of tradition, their interpretation and their traditionalism of the Old Testament. We need to make sure that we don't get calcified like the Pharisees. There's nothing inherently wrong with tradition. It's when you trust in your tradition that it becomes traditionalism and you start to believe that you can be good enough on your own to earn God's favor. Jesus says, no, this new life that Jesus comes to bring cannot be contained in the old wineskins of man-made religious efforts. We've seen it on display in this gospel so far. We're only two chapters in, but we've seen it. We are all spiritual lepers who cannot cleanse ourselves. We are all spiritual paralytics who cannot heal ourselves. We are all are morally corrupted tax collectors who cannot change our heart's affections. The only way that we can be changed is if we come into contact with Jesus and he touches us and he says, get up, walk and follow me. And so that's why he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to rejoice and delight that I'm here with you and that I'm your greatest joy and greatest affection. And if you're going to follow me, then you're going to make every part of your life all about me. So two questions. Two questions from these verses that I trust will challenge our hearts with how we are living out these two truths. Two questions. Question number one. Is your life all about Jesus? Is your life all about Jesus? We can so easily be like the Pharisees and just try to add some Jesus into our lives. How often have you thought the following? God, I want you to pour out new blessings into my life. I want joy. I want satisfaction in you. But I don't want to have to change anything in my life. I want to keep my old life, but I want to just add some fun new things to it. So Jesus, would you answer that prayer? Jesus would say this morning, I have no desire whatsoever to be an add-on to your life. Is Jesus everything to you? Is your life all about him? So often we, like the Pharisees, make Jesus a portion of our lives. We compartmentalize our lives, and Jesus is one compartment. Maybe he's a big compartment. But we also are thrilled by other things, maybe even more so than him. Maybe politics, maybe the latest conspiracy theory, maybe entertainment, sports. It could be anything, but it pops up And we begin to love it and become more enthralled by it and thrilled by it than we are Jesus. Is your life all about Jesus? A good question to ask, maybe you're asking it in your mind, is how would you know if your life is all about Jesus? How would you know? If I ask you, is your life all about Jesus? And you ask, okay, how do I know? How do I determine? Here's my answer. You will know that your life is all about Jesus when everything that you do is done in relation to him. 
Everything. When everything that you do is done in relation to him. Can I say it this way? Jesus has no desire to be a part of your life. He has no desire to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. And if you just want him to be a part, he says, no, you either take all of me or you have none of me. So often we, we make those lists in our mind, right? We got God, we got family, we got work. We have a list. Friends, Jesus has zero desire to be first place on your list. He doesn't want to be first place on your list. So often we just go, Jesus, and then all these different things. No, he doesn't want to be first place on your list. He wants to be your list. He's everything. There's nothing else that you have on that list. He is everything for you. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Paul says it a different way that I think is so helpful. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. We read this a few weeks ago. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that. Why did he die? Why did he suffer? Why was he raised from the dead? So that he will come to have first place over everything? No, what is the preposition that Paul uses? He'll come to have first place in everything. In everything you do, Jesus is first. So Jesus is number one. Jesus is number two. Jesus is number 300. Jesus is number 15,000. Jesus is the list. There is nothing else that you put on that list and everything that you do is done in relation to him. You cannot separate Jesus from any part of your life. That's what it means to make all of your life all about him. If you're here this morning and you do not know if that's the case, I would say the words that Christ said, if you want to save your life, you must lose it today by handing it over to him and saying, I have no more life. You are my life. Only then will you truly find your life. Only then will you truly be able to live. And if you have done that, then you know that your life is hidden in Christ and you have reason to feast and to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is yours and you are his. 2 Corinthians 5 17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. But you cannot have Jesus as king unless you get rid of everything else that you hold on to. Think of it like a, a sailor in a boat. Maybe you're, you're sailing in a boat and you have business. You're trading with somebody else. And so you have all this cargo that will make you so much money. And then you run into a storm. And in the midst of that storm, you are wrestling with what are we going to do? And you're trying every which way to save the cargo. But you get to a place, uh, like we see in Jonah, you get to a place where you say, we're not going to be able to save the cargo. And you look and you make a decision that my life and living through this storm is better than trying to fight it and dying just because we're trying to keep the cargo and get paid. And so you throw it all overboard. Why do you throw it overboard? Because you hate the cargo? No. Because you don't want to get paid? No, because you value your life more than you value getting paid. So you throw the cargo overboard. It's precious to you. Obviously, it's precious to you. It was your job. But life is even more precious. And that's exactly what Jesus would say today. What do you cling to that's precious to you that he would say, you have to throw it overboard or else you will not live? 
Is your life all about Jesus? Second question. Is your life characterized by joy in Jesus? Is your life characterized by joy in Jesus? Remember, we said there are two main points in this section. Rejoice in Jesus as your supreme delight and resolve to make all of life all about him. So the first question is, is your life all about him? It will be if he is your supreme delight. If you love him more than you love anything in this world, then you're going to delight in him and find joy in him. By the way, Jesus rejoices over you. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, just as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. God loves you. He celebrates you. He rejoices over you. It's not because of anything that we have in us that makes us commendable to him. It's because of his kindness, his grace, his love. And if you've heard him say those words that we heard a few weeks ago, your sins are forgiven, then joy and celebration must be your response. You couldn't contain it if you wanted to. To my non-Christian friend here today, if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you do not know that your sins have been forgiven. Maybe you have never turned to him to trust in him alone. Maybe you still cling to something else as your greatest satisfaction. I would just plead with you, will you abandon any and all religious effort? Will you admit that you cannot just add Jesus to your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know what, if I just get a little Sunday service time with Jesus, then the rest of my week will be good. It's like a, like a, a magic eight ball that somehow if I have this lucky charm by showing up at church and now God's going to love me and it's going to get me through the week. You cannot add Jesus to your life and expect it to go well. No, your life will be destroyed. The garment will rip. The wineskin will burst. Will you join today? Join the party. Join the feast by turning from your sins and trusting in the Savior. And question for Christians here. How familiar are you with the joy that's described in this text? How familiar are you with the joy that's described in this passage? It's all too common for believers who grow in their walk with the Lord to become more sophisticated, more composed. But do you remember, do you remember the first time that you realized your sins were forgiven? The bottom of the ocean floor, as far as the east is from the west, he remembers them no more. Do you remember The first time that you knew Jesus loved you. Not because of how well you could perform, but in spite of all your performance. You couldn't contain your joy and your excitement. You would tell anything that would move, do you know Jesus? And now you're reserved. You're sophisticated. There's a story of a woman in church who brought her small child and the child began turning around smiling at people behind her and she responded by reprimanding the child saying shh stop grinning you're at church 
We should not be like that. Remember David dancing in the presence of the Lord. We should be so full of joy. And we are this other side of the cross. David's pre-cross. We're after the cross. We should be so full of joy and glory in the goodness of the gospel. And yet so often we're like the Pharisees. Hey, you should be sad right now. (laughs) Hey, you should be mourning. Hey, don't look so happy. The question is not, why did the disciples fast? The question is, why did the Pharisees not celebrate Jesus? And I wonder, maybe if you are slowly turning into a church curmudgeon, it's because you are beginning to think that the gospel actually was just a small patch that was added to your life. This opens you up to legalism, to pride, to self-righteousness, and to joylessness when you think actually... I used to think that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, but now I kind of think that I was doing okay and I added a piece, of a, a piece of the gospel, a little patch. And now I'm okay. That leads you to pride. That leads you to be a Pharisee. Here's the gospel to Pharisees. The gospel, according to Pharisees, is this. A good God will reward nice people for trying their best. There's the gospel. And by the way, most people in the world believe that's what Christianity teaches that that's the message of the Bible? We know that it's not. I mean, why would Jesus die if that were possible? Just try nice, try to be nice, try to be a good person. No, Jesus died on the cross to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to obey for us because we could never obey ourselves. We could never obey in our own sinfulness. We need to tell people about the true gospel That you can never put yourself in a right relationship with God based on what you do. Jesus is not coming to say that it's about what you do or what you don't do. He's showing up to say it's all about what I've done. And so the issue here in this text isn't really even fasting per se. The issue is that the Pharisees viewed fasting as a means of making themselves clean and right with God. They turned a blessing into a burden. And brothers and sisters, do not turn a means of grace into a means of merit. So many people love the idea of earned acceptance with God because it puts you in a better light. I have earned his favor. I've done certain things and he loves me because of what I've done. People don't like the idea that the worst immoral person that you could ever think of could be, if they are in Christ, turning from sin, trusting in the Savior, that they could be accepted, redeemed, and restored all because of his work and not their own. People don't like that idea. It's a message that will always be controversial. But Jesus is saying, if you know the gospel, if you know the glory of Jesus, if you know the goodness that you have in Christ, then you're going to feast. You're not going to fast. You're going to be merry and not mourn. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. If there is one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness that we must insert, one stitch... If there's one stitch that we need to add to the celestial garment of righteousness that we need to do, then we are lost. But praise the Lord, a bridegroom has come. 
And he has offered us a garment of righteousness that he himself has worked, he himself has woven, he himself has created. And he says, you can take my garment. You don't have to add a stitch to it. In fact, if you do add a stitch, it undoes the whole thing. Just receive the righteousness of Christ. Delight in him and his love for you. And if you do that, if you truly love him, delight in him, and are satisfied in him above anything this world has to offer, then that's going to change the way you live your life. And you will do everything in relation to him. He will be your everything. You're not going to add him as a patch. You're going to throw everything away and say, give me Jesus. Your joy will increase only if you are more aware of your bridegroom than of your sin. J.C. Ryle said these words, cultivate the habit of fixing your eye more simply on Jesus Christ and not always pouring over the imperfections of your heart. Cultivate the habit of fixing your eyes more simply on Jesus and not always pouring over the imperfections of your heart. And then he says this, look up. Look up. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus, who is our greatest delight and who is our very life. Mark is encouraging us through these verses, look up and fix your eyes with joy on your bridegroom. Father, we thank you so much for these verses and these truths that resonate so deeply in our souls. We want to love you more. We want to follow you more closely, but we want to do that not because it earns us any favor with you, but because you've already lavished favor in Christ. God, we love you so much and we are so broken over the fact that even in this text, we look so much more like the Pharisees than like your true disciples. We cling to our own good works. We are so prideful. We are so self-righteous. And we have come to believe in various ways, shapes, and forms that we just needed a little bit of you patched on to our lives. Father, I pray that we would throw away that nonsense. We'd abandon that way of thinking. And we would say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is gone. My life is Christ. Therefore, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. He's everything. Father, I pray that you would teach us, even now as we sing, teach us how we can live life in relation to you, doing everything that we do in relation to your son. And Father, give us great joy. You are no longer against us because of our sin. The wrath that was ours, that we sang about earlier, the wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the innocent. And there is no more fear of future wrath because you are for us. You are in our corner. You are our father. And so we can sing with joy and delight in Christ, our brother. 
we can look upon your marvelous, magnificent, matchless love that is absolutely out of this world. We need to stare at it and see, we don't need to patch that onto our lives. We need all of that and throw everything else away and just get Jesus. How great and how sure is your love for us? How dare we ever turn that into just a little patch to put onto our lives? No, we just want your love. We just want Christ. Give us Jesus. And therefore, all glory will be to him. Nothing of our efforts. No, we throw away the old wineskin. We throw away the old garment. We have nothing. We have nothing to commend us to you. And so we come as beggars and we just say, glory be to Christ who has saved us. Father, give us joy and delight in Christ now as we sing and we celebrate the goodness of the gospel together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.